And then I think about like, okay, my idea, how is it better and how is it different? Like, because you can't just be a little better. You have to be a lot better. And you can't just be better often. You have to be like, there has to be some twist to the product compared to what's on the market today. Welcome to Modern Work. I'm Catherine Conaway, and I talk to people about the work they do and how they got there. For this episode, I spoke with my friend Jono about his education, founding multiple startups, working as a designer, and his approach to entrepreneurship and product development. We recorded our first interview in Vietnam in 2017 while we were working remotely and traveling together with Remote Year. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, I'm Jono. I'm from the Bay Area. I'm a designer by trade, but also I do a lot of random other stuff. So. And then in 2019, we did a follow-up interview over Zoom and talked about his new startup, Wanderium, which is currently in a public beta. Founder of a startup called Wanderium, which is a personalized travel system that helps anyone prepare for a trip in minutes, not hours. So first, you'll hear our 2017 interview and then the 2019 follow-up interview. Remember, you can find show notes, Jono's bio, links, app references, and even definitions of terms we discuss in this episode, all on modernworkpodcast.com. Why don't we go back a little bit in time before you became a designer? What did you do for college? Where did you go? Yeah, so for college, I went to UCLA, and I majored in computer science with a minor in cognitive science. And ultimately, computer science was the right major for me in the sense that it taught me a lot of technical skills, but I was never a great uh, coder or anything. So I never ended up doing that, actually, full on. Yeah. And when you, so when you went to UCLA, <clears throat> was that something that you did because you grew up in, like, like, how did you end up saying like, I'm going to go here. Did you know going in, you were going to do computer science? The area I come from in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley is very computer focused. And my so dad, we've heard. Yeah, like my dad was an engineer growing up. He worked for like Intel, like all these big like chip companies. Uh, my, all my, most of my friends work in tech now. My sister works in tech. Uh, and I've always loved, like, computers when growing up. I used to build my own computers. I used to, like, take programming classes. And that's just, like, just a, because your dad did that, so he always had stuff at home? Yeah, I think it was just, like, natural. I was kind of a nerd, a geek anyway. And it's just, like, it was felt natural because I lived in an environment where that was so prevalent. And it was just, it felt easy. And I was interested in it, even though I wasn't, like, the best at it, I guess. So you were doing both like playing with computers hardware and programming software and other things like that yeah i always did both so growing up yeah i would i would make my own computers i would play a lot of random games uh, and yeah and i took a lot of coding classes in high school so they had um, that at your high school yeah they had it at my high school they had like a ap uh, class computer science ap um, which was a great introduction, and I wasn't even good at that, actually. I don't know. I actually don't know why I ended up majoring in computer science, because my best grades were in, like, English, history, and, like, all these non-science things. But, I mean, relatively speaking, like, my, the area I'm from is, like, I mean, Asians are, like, good at school or whatever, quote-unquote. So, um, I mean, relatively speaking, I was, I was still good at science and math and all that, but, like, I was still better at, you know, history, English, all that stuff, which is kind of odd, considering you know, being an Asian, quote-unquote. <laughs> I'm sorry you're Asian. You, you can't. History's not going to yeah. work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, China and Asia has no long yeah. history to, like, yeah. look back on, learn about. Yeah. Yeah. Stereotypes are so funny. Yeah. Okay, so you ended up at UCLA in particular. You were looking to stay in California, or that was just... Uh. Yeah, that was, I actually, my number one choice was Berkeley because my sister went there, but I mean, I didn't apply to a single private school, actually. I only applied to the UC system 
because, yeah, back then I was thinking it'd be nice to stay in California, but thinking back, I actually think I should have applied to some things on the East Coast, a little something, just get out of that little bubble, which is what I'm doing now in remote year. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> making up for yeah, it. Yeah, making up for it, basically, yeah. Um, and you, so you went to UCLA and it started off with this computer science. Yeah, I mean, I finished school with computer science. Um, so that was your whole experience, was whole like year. pretty focused yeah. on... Uh, yeah, it was a pretty hard major, so I actually, I never studied abroad, which is another big regret, which is why I'm doing this now. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I, I did that my whole time. I minored in cognitive science, and I joined like a business fraternity because I was always interested in business. I, like, I'm like just interested in a lot of things, but I, I chose computer science because of that. it was a, one of the hardest things to understand. It would translate well into the job market. And being, even though if I didn't end up becoming a coder, having that knowledge and being able to talk about it fluently would be super helpful for my career later on. Which I think probably is. It has, has been, been, yeah. True. It's been very, it has been very, very helpful, yeah. Yeah. And that cognitive science minor, do you think that was something that you did that's just because you were curious about it and then that led you kind of into the design side yeah. of things? Yeah, definitely. So cognitive science, I mean, design is a huge chunk of it is like psychology, getting right. people to do certain things and designing a product in a certain way so that it, that it accomplishes a goal. And yeah, so that was, I was reading a ton of psychology books back then because I was starting to get interested in design and like user experience and all that stuff. So cognitive science was a huge help to me and also helped with like understanding language and like it was and like how the brain works and how the other parts of the brain work together to like influence the decisions we make and all that stuff. It was I think So you went you went into cognitive psychology thinking about it from a design perspective. A little bit. A little bit, yeah, yeah. It was kinda around that time where I started to get interested in design and so I, Psychology. I just I've always been interested in how the brain works. I guess is rare is one way, just in general, and so that's why I was interested in cognitive science. And then I realized that translated into design and like products really well. Okay. Yeah. So when you were in college, did you do any internships or jobs? I did. I uh, worked at a company called Shoe Dazzle. I think two summers in a row, maybe one summer in a row. But back then it was actually a huge company. It was like a one. It was a valley like over. I start. I started there just when they were starting, and they became huge like two years after. It was like a, a billion dollar company. Oh wow! Um, it was uh, started by this guy who's who's also like a founder of Honest Company, the one Jessica Alba started. Mm -hmm. But basically, it was like a shoe subscription service. You would go in, take a quiz, and say, like, I like this type of shoe. I like doing this. And eventually, after the quiz, they'd recommend you, like, a shoe type. And then every month, you pay, like, $20. They'd send you, like, shoes based on your shoe type. And back, right now, like, talking about it, it sounds kind of dumb. I think there's a lot of other stuff like that now. But back then, that was, like, really new type of thing. Back then, what are we It was, like, 20, 2009. Okay, yeah, that was yeah, definitely that was, before the, like, subscription box thing became yeah, yeah. super popular. Yeah, like, Birchbox, none of those things existed back then. This was, the, the Shoe Dazzle was, like, the originator of the, like, the subscription box model. Okay. And so, yeah, I worked there, and it was interesting seeing how that all got set up. Was that a job you found, like, through your career counseling office or family friends, and was it, like, a formal internship, or you were just hired to do something? I actually do not remember how I got that job. <laughs> Oh, wait, okay, I think I remember now. So first summer, <laughs> the first summer I had this, like, I think somewhere between second and third year, I worked at this, like, food review website thing, um, and that ended up dying. And then the next summer... So were, were you doing, like, coding Yeah, stuff? I was coding, I was helping with, like, operations. It's, like, a really small team, so I got to do a lot of things, which is what I like doing. 
And that was um, an internship or like a internship. paid? Yeah, they were both paid. Okay. And it wasn't much. It was like a small stipend or whatever. Right. It was like, I did it less for the money and more just for the experience. Sure. So ultimately that thing died. But the the founders, one of the founders of that ended up going to work uh, with the Shoe Dazzle team. He was like brought on as one of the co-founders. So I ended up going to, he liked me, so he like asked if I wanted to intern there the next summer. And so I ended up okay. going there and it was like in K-Town. It was like very scrappy. Uh, this, I never got to see what it was like when it was actually like a huge company, which is, uh, which would have been cool. But yeah, it was interesting to just see how something small became ultimately such a big idea. And I got to learn a lot of different things. Like I worked on like the programming side, but I also worked on like design stuff. I also helped with like some operations. It was very uh, hands-on, yeah. Very cool. I, f- I feel like especially with internships, um, even if you're at like sometimes a bigger institution, if you're you get hired or hired as an intern um, for one thing, but you you can end up doing a bunch of other things. Like you may come in as the like marketing intern or something, but because you're an intern and like they may or may not have a ton of work for you, or now you're just like around. And as an intern, even more than as an entry level employee, sometimes like people expect you to ask questions, they expect you to kind of sit in on other meetings, and so that can be like just get an internship in something. And then use, like, the time that you're going to spend at that company to learn about every other department, get a little experience. And then if you want to transition later, like, oh, cool, now I have, like, this tiny little portfolio (laughs) of design work or something. Yeah, definitely. I think think that's the best thing when you're young. Just optimize for learning. Like, just get any sort of job and just get your hands. Like, you can get hired, yeah, exactly, for one specific role, but just... Make it obvious that you're willing to learn and willing to just go into all these other departments and just get your hands dirty. Because when you're young, that's just the best way to learn, basically. It's the highest like highest rate of growth I feel like you can get mm-hmm. or something like that, yeah. So you did those two internships, and then you graduated. Did you know what you were going to do after graduation? Yeah, so I actually uh, immediately tried to do a startup with uh, my friend from... Uh, oh, bold move. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> friend from school. He was like a legit program. He's like one of the smartest guys I've ever known. He was like uh, like way better than I was. But I was kind of the guy who combined like coding and technical like know-how with like design, psychology, like having some like experience working at startups. So, and then the, the thought process back then, it took me a long time to convince it, by the way. He was, like, very risk-averse, which is not, you know, not that weird. But <laughs> <laughs> I was like, we have no kids. We have no obligations. Literally, like, our costs are be extremely low. Like, this is the time to try something. And I was extremely naive. It was, like, a very funny experience looking back. But I, I, I actually think it was the best decision, probably. What, what year was this? Uh, 2010. 2010. Okay, yeah. so we're past, a lot of us graduated, like, right in that sweet spot of 2008, 2009, but 2010 was a little bit better. Um, what was the startup idea? Um, so, yeah, the start, the economy <laughs> was a little better then, yeah. Yeah. Like, but I, honestly, my grades were not, I, like, I, if I, like, the dream of an engineer is to work at, like, Google or whatever, like, my grades were, like, eh, they're okay. They weren't, like, good enough to go work at Google. I could work at a startup. And to me, it's, like, if I'm going to work for someone else's startup, I might as well do my own startup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> the, the equity difference is like an order of magnitude. It's like a hundred times difference. So mm-hmm. it's like, um, so the product, the first product that I worked on, it was kind of, this was, the way I describe it is uh, Facebook groups on steroids with game mechanics, which sounds very technical, but let me break it down. So Facebook groups <laughs> back then uh, was really crappy. It was like, a, it, it wasn't much better than like an email list. 
and uh, and I was involved with a lot of big groups in college. So like I was in a business fraternity, I was in a big volunteer group, and everyone just always used email lists, and I was just extremely frustrated with that. So I thought there had to be a better way to do this. And Facebook groups was starting to like be a little better than email lists, but it wasn't where I thought it could be. So imagine like a Facebook group today, which has a lot more tools, but we added other tools like uh, being able to vote on a, on a common time. Like everyone votes on the time that they can make. Like back then, no one had that. And you could, it, once voting closed, like it would automatically choose like the best time and then just set that as the event time. Uh, back then, storage space was at a premium. So we do things like we would give groups like a gigabyte of storage, but if they... Uh, and this is where the game mechanics came in. Like, if people help organize events, do all these things, we could give them more storage space. So it was kind of like incentivizing mm. uh, people to take a certain action. So I'm trying to take the psychology things I'd learned by trying to, like, put it into an actual product. Um, what else do we And do? we know that people spend just a stupid amount of time playing games, so why not, like, yeah. take Farmville or whatever yeah. and, like, use it for something you actually care about and, like, are interested in? Yeah, like Farmville back then, that was the exact time Farmville was like getting and game mechanics. Which I've and, never even looked at, but it yeah. sounds silly. <laughs> yeah, like game mechanics <laughs> and gamification was like a huge thing back then. So I mean, it's died down now, but people still use it, the concepts and principle, but it's not as blatant. Like, mm-hmm. oh, like grow this plant and you get a the coin or something like that, mm-hmm. and use a coin to like redeem for something else. Which is kind of the concept that I was doing. It's like, okay, if, if if a group is like 50 people and it's only like two people at the top helping organize, it's really tiring for those two people. But if we can incentivize all 50 people to put in an equal amount of work, like organizing that group should feel much more effortless. Mm-hmm. So that goal was to use game mechanics to try to incentivize the entire group to help organize together instead of having just like two or three people at the top organize. And it would just run much smoother and we would offer like features, like more storage space or more like high-res photos and like for people to like work towards or... Did this startup, how long did you work on it, or did it become yeah. a product people use? Yeah, so we worked on that product for about a year, and it grew to about, like, 10,000 users. Oh, okay. Uh, but is that would, considered successful? Nah, so the thing is that so growing to a certain amount of users is not in itself success. It's what you grow at, like, the rate of growth. Okay. And it was not, we were nowhere, we weren't really growing naturally. Every time we got a growth spurt, it was, like, through PR it was, like, people weren't really referring friends, mm. which is, like, that number one uh, indicator of, like, how successful a product is doing is, like, if people are actually referring their friend and it's growing naturally upon Yeah, it's, like, you yeah. have to get on Instagram. Oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. Like, if everyone's getting on yeah, Instagram, people, you tell me you don't, like, now yeah. we know Instagram's huge. Like, cool. Yeah, exactly. So it, the growth was very, like, people, we would get good feedback. Like, qualitatively, we would get good feedback, but quantitatively, like, the rate of growth was, like, too slow to actually be a sustainable product. Mm-hmm. Um, and back then, it, I was all about like, oh, make a consumer product, grow to like millions of users, and then monetize through like ads or something like that, which is essentially what Facebook does. Right. But it's the probability of success for that kind of model is very low. Okay. Um, unless you you the it's more exception than the rule for those types of products. Right. Yeah. So what so what happened at the end of this year like? So then we ended up pivoting. Well, not pivoting. We just basically like, okay, this product's not working. Let's try a different product. So you just like stopped it. Yeah, the yeah. users buy. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, then the next uh, next product we worked on was one I actually had in high school. So I was like kind of involved in politics in high school, but I always thought it was very hard for a single person to understand every single viewpoint for a complex issue. So let's say, let's take abortion. That's a complex issue. There's like so many uh, different takes on it. And it would always take 
like for example, it would take me like hours to be able to research every single viewpoint and understand the big picture and actually be able to talk about it intelligently and actually like uh, maybe vote in the way that I believe like that matches up with my values, right? So I basically built this tool Imagine like a like a website, a web application, and in a single interface, it shows you the issue, and it shows you every single viewpoint, and people can attach evidence to every single viewpoint. So it's like you can go through every, all, every single viewpoint and see all the evidence for every viewpoint and get the whole picture really quickly. Okay. And you can also vote for the viewpoint that you agree with. And then ultimately, our goal was to not just help people be more informed by helping them see the whole picture of these complex issues, but also to... Uh, once people vote on the things they agree with and they build up like a, a graph, like a, a list of their beliefs, essentially. Mm. And I can compare my beliefs with other people and see like how we match up. And ultimately, that tool could even be used as like a personalization data set into other products. Like other products, you know, how people, like Facebook uses the Facebook graph and you can plug in your Facebook friends into other products and they'll pull in your friends and you can like do stuff with them there no okay well <laughs> that's <laughs> like you a, can show well, me later it, it's, it's you see it everywhere it's actually probably so normal now that you don't even think about it when you uh, sign in with facebook facebook onto a new product they take your like uh mo- a lot of products will ask you for your friends list uh-huh. and then once you do that uh that product will be like oh your other like cat jono and Catherine are also on this project with you do you want to like use it with them like mm. on messaging or something like that okay so yeah, the idea is that we could build this data set of, of beliefs that people had and in other products and use those uh, set of beliefs, like personalize the product to how people actually are. Okay. Yeah. How did that go? It was the same thing. Like we grew to like, <laughs> we're actually pretty similar now, like 10 to 15,000 users. But the thing I realized with that product is that the majority of the world, the vast majority of the world is not that intellectual. People like reading like listicles and like five things this dog does that's funny, you know. Right, like the idea of like long form journalism yeah. and evidence-based stuff, which I think I, I think what you're talking about like that sounds like a really interesting thing. And I think what I've I've often thought about, not as much from a product standpoint, because that's not something I know how to think about much, but I wish there were good ways of getting much more objective information that allowed people to kind of interact with it without seeing like a red or a blue or like a like I already know I'm going to feel this way. How do you get people to learn about information and experiences and and issues and and what's happening in the news in like a more objective way so that they can just have I think maybe a little more eye-opening experience because I think all of us are so biased to just go in thinking like I already know that I'm going to agree with this or not. Yeah, like confirmation bias. That's, that's one of the biggest things we were trying to battle against. And it was actually during the election, so we built this tool to compare your viewpoints with, like, Obama, Clinton, McCain, and all these things. Like the 2012 election. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the 2012 election. And back then, I, I was kind of sad when we clo- turned down, closed the product, or because I thought it's a tool the world needs. It's just a, not a tool they want. Right. <laughs> so, and, <laughs> Which uh, is really hard. Yeah, it was... and. I mean, seeing the, I mean, this recent election, obviously, is just, we needed that on another level. Mm-hmm. And back then, considering how bad it was back, it was just like, I thought it was bad back then. And then now we see this election, it was like 10 times worse. So Yeah, the idea of like post-fact and alternate <laughs> yeah, fact. Yeah. I'm like, I can't believe people are saying this with a straight face. So you had these two startups. Out of curiosity, were you guys making? Do you have any money or funding? No. So we raised like uh, like a hundred thousand from like some ex Google people. Um, so yeah, it was just like it was very not much money. But I moved home to save money, 
And then... Was it just the two of you? Yeah, it's just the two of us. Okay. Although we had, like, interns at some points. Um, but it was kind of not... It was pretty, like, scrappy and not that formal by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we survived on that for, like, two years. Which is actually pretty crazy, considering how much money I spend now. <laughs> but back then, I was, like, not a real adult yet, so I didn't know what <laughs> spending money was like. <laughs> so what happened after the, the startup experience? Um, yeah, so yeah, after we ran out of money and we closed down the company, which took f- forever, by the way. Like, the just doing, like, setting up legalese things is the worst thing. But um, I ended up interviewing for jobs, like, all over, uh, mostly in San Francisco and some in New York. I thought about moving there. So I interviewed for, like, product manager roles and product designer roles. And I ended up going to this uh, company called Discuss in San Francisco. Discuss? Yeah, Discuss. D-I-S-Q-U-S, which is, like, a commenting platform. Like, you see it on a lot of blogs. I was, like, the product designer there for about four and a half years. And I was, like, became the lead product designer there. And what is a product designer? So a product designer, the, ro- the way I describe it is, in, at least in tech, there's often like a UI designer or like UX designer or like communication. There's like very specialized roles for design in like bigger companies like Google or Facebook. For product design is really a generalist role. Like you can basically execute the entire product design process from like ideation, conception, wireframe, like UI, uh, like low fidelity UI to high fidelity UI to actually like prototyping and like making it feel real and then actually some people can actually develop and code so I, I actually did that pretty much I did that entire process I could do that entire process except like some of the back end programming so I did a lot of front end coding too and it was mostly for web although I did towards the end I did some mobile what um, is front end coding versus back end so front end coding is like what you see it is the interactions that you as a user actually play with like when you cl- click a button and that actually does something that is front end coding right back so you're coding, still coding like in a coding language but the thing that that code is doing is what i'm working with yeah right yeah yeah okay it is what the user actually sees the back end is like the data like how can you like when i click a button and the number changes how the back end will tell you what to change the number to. Okay. So that's like, it's kind of like behind the scenes, like data manipulation and, and like, uh, like making sure things are fast and making sure like data is sent fast between the front end and back end and like uh, making, making sure it actually produces the right data, stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. And so as a product designer at uh, Discus. Discuss. Discuss. Yeah. So. Oh! It's like okay. discussion. You know? I got it. I don't know why I was really hung up on that. So the product was common? Like, yeah, what was like the a, product? Uh, so if you read any blog, like to, like any uh, online publication like Time or like CNN or like Hypebeast, if you go to the bottom of the article, there's always a comments. And so people don't realize those comments are not usually powered by the blog itself. They usually like will get another service to like discuss so actually, it's like a plugin on the website, and it just loads comments, and then people can comment, and then they comment on the article, they can like reply to each other, stuff like that. Um, it is, back then, it was definitely a bigger thing. I think a lot of media companies, a lot of magazines have started to move away from comments, mm-hmm. which is, uh, which is I understand in some cases why, but sometimes it is, the comments can still be very valuable. Right. Yeah, like the discussion that It's just on. hard because they're really not moderated. Like, they're not yeah. investing in moderators. Mm-hmm. So if it spirals out of control or is inappropriate, like, you definitely don't want unproductive commenting happening. And so I think that's that hard line of, like, well, do you invest in moderators or 
Do you just take away the comments? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, yeah, that's a great point. So we would think of our sweet spot, that is essentially like the perfect community that we had, was always like a small website with like really dedicated moderators. Like it was just basically like a single blog with like a single writer, and he's like really dedicated as well. Like they always moderate really well. But the second something grows beyond like, like million, like like a really like a like a website like CNN, their comments were just trash. Like the amount of people commenting, which there's no <laughs> way you could hire any amount of moderators that could like control that community. Yeah. Because the way I think about it is like you would be open to living in a town like a small town of a hundred people where you knew everyone and there was no police. Like that that's not that weird to think you know because you know everyone and a town of like of like a like a like a fifty thousand town like yeah you want to live in a. You want police there at that point. If you and if you live in like New York, of course you're gonna need a lot of police. So it's like, <laughs> it's like that, that's the analogy we often like using is that like okay. like when publishers when people talk about like oh the comments are trash. Well, yeah, you need to like actually invest in the moderation of it. It's not right. just going to like magically be amazing. People are not <laughs> right. There's ten thousand people yeah. screaming. Like, which doesn't sound internet. like anything. Like. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. so your but your role as a designer like. It, is that is that product constantly being designed in different ways for different customers or you're just doing updates to it like what is that were you on a big team yeah so it depends like the projects all range in sizes sometimes there would be complete redesign sometimes there would be a completely new product that we have to like think on about from scratch or sometimes there's tiny updates like for example we had problems around like flagging like people didn't fully understand how flagging worked so we had to like rework that to clarify or people were like confused about like downvotes, they hated the way downvotes worked, and they thought like it effect negatively affected a lot of communities. So we like changed that interaction slightly. So it depends. And our team was not that big, so the design team was like four of us. So when you're designing the product, you're also designing the thing that the publisher is interacting with, and that platform that they get the dashboard. Yeah. So like product design, like it, just, it would just mean like any product we have. So like number one, yeah, the number one product was a commenting uh, widget essentially. Number two was a backend dashboard for publishers. There's also like advertising dashboards, which is how they made money. Um, there's also like just like marketing web pages and websites. That's like more general web design that we had to do. Yeah, we had a mobile app, so we worked on that too. So any like of those like five. And you weren't assigned to one of them. You just were on whatever. I had things I focused on, but I was my hands were like in a lot most things, yeah. And what was that work experience like? Like, it was you were great. there for four and a half years. So. Yeah, I really enjoyed like really smart people, uh, really good work life balance, uh, and I felt like I had a lot of responsibility. I mean, and towards the end, I mean, I was four and a half years. Yeah, for in in San Francisco, it was actually a long time. Like most of my friends. And most people you see in tech in, in the Bay Area, like two years is probably the average, maybe mm-hmm. less, actually. Um, so, yeah, I definitely enjoyed my time there. And it, those four years were, like, very formative for me personally, too. Like, I actually, like, felt like I was being an adult because <laughs> I was actually being paid, like, a pretty high salary. And, uh, you know, yeah, I lived on my own in San Francisco. I ended up buying a place. So, Yeah. And then you came on remote year with that job. Yeah, so I came on remote year with that job. Um, so we did have, so the company is about like 50 to 60 people, and we did have remote uh, coders, but never any remote designers. And it's for a good reason. Like design is much more, uh, you have to have a lot more meetings, and you have to like talk to a lot more people. It's not like where you can just hold up 
and just code away and like be done. Um, although I mean, so there are parts of that like in design, but it's, it's not as common. Overall, was it successful for you working remotely with them or? I would say yes, but it wasn't as good as being in person. Like, okay. I, I, at least for discuss, it just wasn't a remote first company, which mm-hmm. is a lot, what a lot of companies these days are calling themselves when they're fully distributed and remote. So it worked, and then I, 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 could, I can say I did a good job, and I can say that we still like, put out cool stuff, but it, was, it wasn't the easiest. It wasn't as easy as just being in the office, that's for sure. What was the decision like to leave? Basically, applied for remote year, and once I got in, I was, I was going to do it regardless of whether or not my company had said uh, yes, because <laughs> I just needed to kind of get out of California and like get out of that whole bubble and like just explore the world. <laughs> So I told him, I just, I didn't, I don't know if I really asked. I just said, I'm doing this program in February. <laughs> and uh, let me know if you think we could work out like some sort of remote deal. And that's, I left it at that with, with my CEO. And then like we, we re like brought it back up like once it got closer and we worked out a deal where I said like, I mean, I just made a commitment saying like I would work West Coast hours well, at least in South America, I said I work West Coast hours. Like, every time you switch continents, I kind of renegotiate. I would call in for all my meetings. I'm pretty, I'm pretty organized. I'm pretty, I'm say, reliable. So I, I never miss any deadlines or anything. I'm pretty communicative. And then that was the other thing I did. I just, like, made sure to be over-communicative, which is, I think, very important when you're remote. Yeah, I think it, it comes down to, A, figuring out what tools you and your team are going to use and then how you want to use them. And then just really being on top of using it well. Keeping people updated. I make a lot of lists of like statuses. What's the status on like whatever projects we have or whatever aspect of that project, whether that's billing or creative or whatever. Um, And just keeping a running status list I think is so important because then you're constantly sending that back to the person that you're working with and they can say like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is where you're at. This is where I'm at. Yes. Or like, no, we're on a totally different page. <laughs> I would use Trello to like manage my design tasks. I can, and then also like, I'm working on this right now, this week. Like mm-hmm. people could come to my Trello board and see that what I'm working on. So there was transparency there. And people wouldn't have to constantly ask me about what I'm working on. Like it kind of worked, it kind of didn't. Uh, just because once again, we weren't like a remote first company. Like people were used to just like being in office and asking what people are working on. And people mm-hmm. were like, would talk about it on a daily standup, which I would attend every day. What made you decide to, like, leave, leave? Uh, that's a good question. So I had, it was, from, it was for a few different reasons. First, it was uh, we were moving to Asia soon, and doing West Coast hours in Asia would have been, I was not going to. It was 1 a.m. to 9 a.m. every day, so. Yeah, because it's, it's, we're 12 hours off East Coast, so that's yeah, 15, like 15 hours yeah. ahead of yeah. Pacific. And, and so, yeah, that was the main reason. And number two is... You know, while I enjoyed my time there a lot, it was time to just do something new. Uh, four and a half years is a lot to spend, I think, anywhere. And I've always had, like, dreams of doing something, like, in the, just being an entrepreneur, which I, which I tried to do doing the startup before, but I, I think I had grown a lot and had, like, learned a lot, and I feel like I have... I, if I take another stab at it now, I have, like, a much better chance of success, like, knowing what I know today. Mm-hmm. And I just have, like, so many ideas I want to work on. So you've been unemployed for a few months now yeah so I've been like you basically using the past few months so like I've had like a list of like 10 ideas that I was like 
all these ideas sound promising, like, but how can I actually like dig deeper and like research these more to understand which ones have the highest probability of success, while also satisfying like a few other things, like things that I'm passionate about, that I feel like I'm good at, that, uh... How have you organized, like, these ideas and the rubric and... I have a whole notebook in, in Evernote of ideas that I'm constantly writing in. I probably like put five new ideas in a week. Um, so each idea is a note. Yeah, a note in my I know, ideas notebook. Yeah, <laughs> I love Evernote. So yeah, at this point you're just kind of like adding in notes and ideas to these notes. I basically have narrowed it down to two main ideas I want to work on. Um, How did you narrow it down? Okay, one simple test that I do is just like. I have this idea, okay, let's say I think of an idea today. If I'm still thinking about it in, like, a week or two, it means that I actually, like, really like the idea. If it just, like, goes away after a day, it means it wasn't actually that great of an idea. Okay. That's, like, once, like, just, like, the starter test for me. Okay. And so, like, okay, let's say it stays with me. Then I'll actually dig into it more. Like, oh, okay, what is the current market like? Uh, if it's, is it, like, really crowded? Is it a really popular market? Like, So you just look on... The app store. Yeah, app store. Like a lot of a lot of, like you can just search on Google for existing market stuff. You can look at Google Trends for seeing like okay, has the keywords for this product been searched a lot? Yeah, you can do that for any like Twitter hashtags. You mm. can do that for uh, Amazon. What kind of products they have? So I look at what the existing market is like, and then I think about like okay, my idea. How is it better and how is it different? Like because you can't just be a little better. You have to be a lot better, and you can't just be better often you have to be like there has to be some twist to the product compared to what's on the market today um and also uh, like do i yeah do i think i could actually execute and actually get it done that's one thing and then how big is the actual market so when you're thinking through all of this are you doing that like on your computer with the note open like writing it down or is that like you take a walk and you're just like thinking about it it is both. I'm constantly like in the shower. I've I I often I, I probably shampoo like more than I have to every like three times a week because I like think of something and I forget <laughs> if I actually shampooed my hair. Because <laughs> because the shower is like the one of the few times in our life today that you are like have z- literally nothing. Yeah. There's to no distract device. You. There's yeah. nothing to distract you. Yeah. It's just you and your thoughts. Right. And <laughs> just think of so many things in the shower that. So I usually, like, will come out of the shower. After I'm done, I, like, write it in my... I mean, I try to write it all in my notes, but it's hard. Like, I know you are often thinking things in your head. Like, you wish you can have an auto-transcriber through your head. <laughs> I really wish for that, too. <laughs> like, it's a little scary if it existed, yeah. but I think I would love it. Like, yeah, yeah. It would make my life so much easier. <laughs> okay, so, yeah. Found a market fit I talked to you about. Like, something I'm actually passionate about. Something I have experience in. Something I feel confident I can be good at. So to clarify, this is a note he has called What I Want to Do. And we have a section <laughs> that is requirements. So we have... So the first one is founder market fit, which is, which is a fancy way of saying that it's actually something that suits you well. Okay. Like it's an idea that suits you as a person. Well. Something I'm passionate about, that I obsess about, I can hold my attention for more than four years. <laughs> something I have a lot of experience in. Like, for example, I'm really intimate now with, like, travel problems. Right. Like, what travel? What do the problems travelers have? Um, something I feel confident I can be good at. Practical, so I really, like, will make money. You know, it doesn't need to be, like, a billion-dollar idea, but if I can, like, make enough money to live off of, like... Right, like, is there some way to monetize this? Or? Yeah, yeah. And it's something that I can do without too many resources. Like, if this is, like... 
requires me to like launch a satellite. You know, I'm not gonna do that. Donna was going to the moon. Unless I already had a lot of money, you know. So that's the difference. Uh, and this one is kind of not a hard requirement. Like allows flexibility. You know, I really enjoy the remote lifestyle, and I want to work on an idea where I can work on it from anywhere. Um, and I can work on it whenever. Like, I'm not tied to a time zone or time frame during the day. Mm-hmm. And the other one is uh, something I can initially work on myself and go fast on. So there's that quote, like, if you want to go fast, go by yourself. If you want to go far, go with other people. Mm-hmm. So, like, for me right now, I'm just trying to, like, research everything and, like, go fast and just, like, get things done really quickly. But I know eventually, like, if it's a big enough idea, I have to, like, find a co-founder or a partner to work on it with to, like, actually... Uh, explore some of the work and make it easier to make it uh, increase the probability that we can actually like get it done and launch it right um, and we find product market fit that's essentially just meaning like h- how to like verify that there is a market for the product you want to make and it's a uh, it's more of a it's more of an art than science in the beginning obviously like you don't know for sure you can do some research but um you never know, like, with 100% certainty. Otherwise, every, any, everyone would be making products and launching products, and everyone would be, like, a billionaire, but that's right. not the case. Right. <laughs> um, the other one is uh, can learn a lot. So, like, I often call this, like, I like to optimize for learning. Like, I want to just be able to, like, that's why I'm looking into, like, hardware manufacturing or, like, affiliate marketing or, like, blogging. Like, these are all things that I've, well, especially hardware manufacturing, like, that, I don't know anything about really, but it's super interesting to me, and I just want to like learn as much as I can and see if that's something that I could potentially do. Creatively fulfilling. So this one is like I want to make something that doesn't exist yet. I don't want to just do some sort of retread of someone else's idea. That's just boring to me. I just mm-hmm. like I wouldn't feel proud. Is it's is one thing. Although like there's something to be said for like just doing something to make money. Like sometimes if you can just like private label an existing product without changing anything you can make money that way that's cool too but personally like I'm not sure like that's what I want to do right because if, if your name is on it like yeah. that's really what you want your name yeah. on it's just yeah. something else somebody else yeah. made although like my current thing is like if I can find a fur- surefire way of doing that and making money and investing that in something more creative later on that's something that's a, maybe a good path right uh, and mission mission based so like just the idea of like finding a purpose that you care about and like you can it's kind of like the found, founder market fit mm. earlier but just like be able to dedicate myself to a purpose and hopefully have it do some good for the world right yeah and so this this like rubric and list you've written out is that something that you learned anywhere or it was just a matter of you kind of taking <sighs> your experience and just putting it into words these are all little things that I've learned like over the years like reading business books or like product books or just like random articles and, and things of myself. This is kind of like what I've come up with mm-hmm. uh, for myself. I really wish I like could attach these every single one of these to a book or like an article I read, but it's, yeah. I don't. I can't. Not everybody's like a writer in the sense of being a writer, but I think if you can get in the habit of like sitting down and writing out like your thoughts or like what you think you want like I just I find like I get so much value out of whether it's like a personal relationship that I'm thinking about or a work project or an idea that I have like I can think about it all day long and talk to people about it and like that's great like you make a lot of progress in that but actually sitting down and be like let me write an outline or let me write like here's what I think here's what I want like here's the goal actually seeing it in writing from yourself 
can make a huge difference in being able to move forward because otherwise you just kind of keep spinning yeah. your wheels yeah this so this has helped me a lot with like evaluating the, the ideas that i've had like oh is this actually kind of fit generally like these things that i've listed i just literally just brain dump every day everything that i think of <laughs> and it's easy to look back and see like okay like is that actually true still like things you know just like comparing and it's really nice to have resources available where you can find stuff. I think my dad was saying something about that. Like think back to somebody like Thomas Jefferson, write everything on a paper. He had this library, this library is located in one location. So he had to know if he wanted to know something like what book is that? Like, where is it in this physical library? Whereas now just open Evernote and I just search the term that I know is related and it'll show me the article I've saved or the note that I wrote or whatever about that. Some people will say like, well, that's like our lives are so much easier. Like you're cheating, but really all it means is if you know how to look for the things and record the things, now your brain is just freed up to do something else. So just do something productive with that space you've freedom you've been given. I write everything down so I don't I can stop thinking about it and, yeah. I'll, and then use my like my brain power to for something else. Like, right. I don't have to Otherwise, I do keep thinking about it. I'm very. Right. I think me and you are similar in that sense. That we're very neurotic. <laughs> it's like, well, and you don't have to know everything then. Yeah. Like I, because I don't have to know the thing. I just have to know it's in my Evernote, and I just need to search here. Or it's in my Google Drive, and I just have to search that. Like as long as I know the search term yeah. and the location, I can forget everything yeah. else because exactly. it's there. You don't have to memorize every fact anymore. To train yourself to do it. It takes yeah. a while, you know. Yeah, and you have to figure out your habits and your yeah. organization and, like, yeah, yeah. oh, I'm going to have notebooks for these subjects and I will title them in this way. And, like, you have to figure out what is this way to make this a productive tool. So getting back to this idea that you're working through, you've kind of done this initial thought on a lot of them and you've come to maybe a couple that you're thinking about. What's the research phase that you're in now? The research phase I'm in now is I'm kind of just, like, brain dumping, like, okay, what does the current market... How is what is the way that I think about it, and like what is the the brand I'm trying to create for these products, uh, like what is the, and I I'll put, also put pull in like inspiration like these are brands I like, I've done that with you before. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I like, just like auditing the experience of using that product from beginning to end, and that includes like okay, let's say I'm making a hardware manu- I'm, I'm manufacturing a physical product. Um, like the experience begins with like ordering on the website, right, and then like the email you get. And then when it actually arrives, like, the packaging is nice. And when you open the packaging, like, maybe it could say something there to you. And, like, you know, it's the entire thing. It's not just the product itself. It's, like, the whole experience. Like, that's one of my philosophies with, like, any sort of ideas. Like, you have to think about the, the experience from beginning to end and not just, like, using just that small part of actually using the product. Right. Like, it's not just what you plug into the wall yeah. and how that experience happens. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's the, whole, the whole way that it gets into your house. Yeah, so that's, like, the phase I'm in. I'm just, like, trying to flesh out everything. I'm trying to, like, write the, like, kind of, like, pitch decks for these ideas in addition to, like, trying to flesh out what the product should be like. And you've been doing a lot of interviews with people to yeah, get information. So, yeah, the, like, the area I've been focusing on, as you know, is, like, travelers and the problems they have. Um, and I ultimately think my conclusion is that as a market, it is very ripe for someone to come in and create, like, a brand that is more premium the higher quality, uh, more functional, like you know it's gonna, it's designed well, like you designed to like accomplish its function like really well. Uh, it's stylish, like all the products, a lot of travel products today look like you're gonna go hiking or like some other like weird activity. I just want it to be like more casual and stylish. 
Yeah. And so that's kind of the direction I'm going in. And I'm trying to create like a brand that sells multiple products and with those values, not just a single product. After Remote Your Ends in like two days, you are <laughs> going to Taiwan. Yes, I'm going to Taiwan for at least two months, uh, two months so f- two months at a minimum so far, just to uh, find a good place that's a little cheaper than where I'm from, which is Bay Area, which is like super expensive, and then find a place that I can just like focus on these projects and like kind of be more heads down without feeling like the need to go explore. Because I've been to Taiwan a lot since I have relatives there. And you're doing um, some research also of like factories and materials stuff. Yeah, so I was in Shenzhen at the beginning of this month, actually, to look at, understand the eco, the manufacturing ecosystem there and just to, like, make some relationships there. And it's very interesting. Like, you can basically get anything you want made there. It's not easy, but it's definitely doable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it definitely helps if you can speak Chinese, which I kind of do, but it wasn't that great. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was, within that, those two weeks of being in Taiwan and China, like, my, my Chinese got, like, way better. So I think... Going to yeah, Taiwan for a yeah, couple months will help a lot, and I also had like a cousin that I hadn't met until I got to Shenzhen. He was really helpful, so yeah. Cool. Well, I'm really curious to see what uh, you end up making. Thanks. I'm sure it's gonna be stylish but casual and very, <laughs> very useful. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> this episode is supported in part by Bluffworks. Bluffworks makes clothing designed to empower the journeys of men and women around the world for work, play, and beyond. Their versatile clothes are easy to wear and easier to care for. From suit separates to t-shirts, men and women now have options for a superior wardrobe with a little bit of wanderlust. Get 10% off when you shop Bluffworks using the code MODERNWORK. Visit bluffworks.com, that's bluffworks.com, and use the code MODERNWORK. Thanks for listening. Now back to the episode. We last spoke, (laughs) did our original interview a while ago when we were finishing up remote year in Vietnam. So it's been about two and a half years, which means you've probably been up to a few things since then. Uh, Do you want to give a little recap of what you've been doing? So after remote year, I think that was in January 2017, uh, I ended up spending another year traveling on my own. And doing four months in Taiwan, a month in Korea, a few months in Japan, and then a month in Mexico before finally moving back to San Francisco at the beginning of 2018. Um, and the biggest part of that whole year was actually the four months in Taiwan that I spent because a lot of my relatives are still living there. And it was by far the most amount of time I've ever spent with any of them because normally on trips when I was younger, it would be like two weeks max or whatever. And so it was really nice to get to know my relatives better, you know, improve my Chinese, understand my heritage a lot better, which I don't think many first generation Americans get to do. Yeah. I mean, I can't speak to that because I grew up in the States with a family that had been there for several generations, but I think it would be so interesting to get to have that perspective and insight, which in some ways, like I know there's a lot of challenges of being like first or second generation American. Like, we have issues with that. But I also feel like I always, you know, because my family felt very like generic American, I'm probably not giving them enough credit, but like <laughs> the ability to go back to another country and actually have relatives yeah. and, and a connection to something that is so different from where you grow up, I think is really cool. Yeah, I definitely grown more appreciative as I, as I got older. I remember when I was young, I was like, it's kind of hard to balance the two cultures. But as I got older, I'm kind of like, that's actually pretty cool that I get at move between these two cultures and understand both of them. Yeah. And that you speak Chinese. Is it Mandarin? 
Okay. Well, that's like the, that's the lingua franca, I guess, of Taiwan and China, even though there are dialects in both China and Taiwan. So, but that's what you speak is just like the general Mandarin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you started learning as a kid. I didn't really study it that diligently. That's actually a big regret of mine. Was when I was younger, I kind of just like was very blase about it. I was like, whatever. And I was pretty bad at it. And I wish I actually tried harder. <laughs> I feel like those are the things that our parents try to tell us about when we're kids. Like, you're so lucky that you get language and piano class. And we're like, whatever, mom. I just lay down. Now I'm voluntarily signing up for art classes and stuff yeah. that my parents yeah. try yeah, your art looks really good. Oh, I mean, thank you. Wow. I mean, I think it's really cool you're doing that. It's like cool to just do something different for your day in and day out work. Yeah, I really like it. It's not, I never thought, oh, I'm going to go become an artist, but I read The Artist's Way and it, it encourages you to just try different creative projects. And for some reason, that just seemed like an easy, portable art form of watercolor. So it's like, okay, we'll play with this. And it is really nice to do something that isn't on the computer. Yeah, definitely. It is fairly portable to different places, obviously, because of my lifestyle. It's a fun thing. It's nice to be able to take some classes. And yeah, I, I think we sometimes, especially as adults, forget that we can do things without them becoming like our job or our life passion. I just bought a ukulele to try to like get back in music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been trying to find something that's away from the computer that I can kind of just spend a little time doing every day. So after Moyer ended, you traveled around a bunch in Asia, Mexico, and then you moved back to San Francisco. Why did you decide to move back to San Francisco? I moved back to San Francisco mainly because basically all my closest friends and family are still here. So it's kind of hard for me to see anywhere, see myself anywhere else long term. But I mean, all professionally speaking to you, like my, my interest is like tech, like software and San Francisco and the Silicon Valley in general is still like the best place for that. Um, but I mean, it's pros and cons, obviously. The costs in San Francisco are out of control relative to pretty much any other city, except for maybe like London and New York. Um, so it's been good and bad. You know, I, it's also, I mean, I guess I do miss being a nomad full time sometimes. It's also really nice to have a home base. It's definitely one of those things you don't fully appreciate until you experience life without it. So what have you been doing for work? So after a year, I basically spent a few months exploring New York. So I had quit my old job and then I spent a few months exploring New York to work on like manufacturing my own products in Shenzhen, which is the epicenter of manufacturing in China. But I ultimately decided to come back to software and content. And I've been working on a startup called Wanderian. So Wanderian is basically a personalized travel assistant that helps anyone prepare for a trip in minutes and not hours. And what I mean by that is that traveling today is still a really overwhelming and time-consuming process. You know, there's so many decisions to make, so many things to research, things like vaccines, visas, weather, travel adapters, local customs and laws, products to bring, and so on. And so what Wandering does is basically brings it all together in a single place. And a good analogy I like to use is, um, have you ever used TurboTax or Stitch Fix? A little bit, yes. So I kind of think of it as similar to that in the sense that you're taking a really complex experience, whether it's like filing your taxes or trying to create a stylish wardrobe, and simplifying it down so all you have to do is answer a few questions, and it'll then create a personalized, guided experience that's super easy and super super fast, and like you don't really have to think that hard. So that's what I'm working on, and it's pretty early stages, actually. So what I actually had to do was I had to teach. I spent six months last year teaching myself full stack development because prior to that I had only been a designer. Uh, and I had some coding experience, but it wasn't that I couldn't build what I envisioned, you know, 
So I basically spent like six months just taking all these classes online and teaching myself full stack development so I could build the prototype, or at least the most basic first version of this product. And so basically since, I mean, I guess July of last year, I've been actually coding and working on, on this first version. And what made you decide, I'm going to go, first of all, what is full stack development? When you create an app, you basically have a few different things you got to do. You have the thing you see, which is a user interface. You have to be able to build that. But then the interface usually shows things like data that is being pulled from somewhere. So you actually have to build a database that stores all the, all the data. It's basically like a giant Excel sheet. But instead of it being Excel, it's more like technical, I guess. But basically, you're just pulling data from this giant Excel sheet and then transferring it over to whether it's your phone or your computer. And then, and then the interface has to then like figure out what to do with the data and then display it in a certain way. So basically, in traditional software development, you kind of have to specialize in, oh, I do the user interface. Oh, I do the stuff in between where I transfer the data between the front and back. Or I have to do just the back database stuff. So some people, if you want, but if you want to build your own application, you kind of have to learn all of that. So that's kind of what I did. I kind of knew some stuff about the interface. I didn't know that much about the database and like transferring data to the front and back. And that's kind of what I'm doing. So I basically learned JavaScript, which is basically is the name of the language that's transferable between the front and the back. And then a framework called React, which is made for user interfaces. And then the database language I learned, or like the database I'm using is called DynamoDB, which is owned by AWS, which is an Amazon company, with like a gigantic Amazon company that does all the technology services. I mean, they're like super popular these days. That's kind of why I chose it. So like if everything fails and then like I know these new valuable skills. Did you use the like free resources online to learn or did you do a, pr- a program? I use Udemy, which uh, they which is actually pretty good. I, they have some pretty well-known instructors that do some really well-reviewed classes there. And they often have a sale, I think like once or twice a year where it gets like super cheap. It's like 10% of the list price. So I got like five classes for like 20 bucks and like they're all really helpful. What made you decide you wanted to learn how to do all this rather than collaborate with someone. Okay. So in the past I've done, I've collaborated, I've done a bunch of startups and done like launch little projects with people. And I usually will have to work with an engineer to get it built. But the downside of that, while it's sometimes fun is that there's so much collaboration overhead and you can't move that fast. You have to constantly be explaining little details and designing things a certain way versus like, I was just like, I want to just for one time build what I see without any sort of communication. I just want to be able to go, you know what I mean? And you can't do that unless you have the full skill set to be able to build this. And I know this is not a sustainable long-term. I know I can't be doing all of this, but I mean, I think the benefit of doing this way is like, yeah, I can build the first version myself, but eventually if I want to hire, I have a much better understanding of what to hire for because I've actually done it myself. It might not, I'm not, might not have done it the best possible way, but at least I can talk to people in a way that's way more effective and just be smarter about hiring. That's what I did with the podcast. When I first started, it was just me doing it. Everything took forever because I was learning how to edit and everything else by myself. It's not that complicated, but now I have like an assistant and an editor and more of a team, but I had a much clearer vision of how I wanted the podcast to work what went into editing, how much time is reasonable for anything. It's so much, it makes you such a better manager or client or whatever, when you do have some of that firsthand experience, like you said, even if you're not the best, at least you can respect and understand. 
person has to do. Yeah, exactly. And it makes communication between people so much more fun because you actually share the same vocabulary. To go back to it's Wanderium. Yeah, Wanderium. So yeah, I actually had a previous version that was called Wandercut. It was like pure content. But I was like, there's something bigger here. And I feel like a big problem that I was saying is that people were saying, okay, I like the content here. Well, okay, the content was basically just like the best travel products and the best travel services kind of curated so that you don't have to worry about the quality of any of the recommendations. So the big problem I was running into is that people are like, this is cool, but I have to read through every single one of these to understand what is actually applicable to my trip. You know, that's a lot of work. So I was like, there's a bigger idea here in the sense that it could be personalized to a person's specific conditions and the trip they're going on and all these things. And that's kind of what I'm doing now is that I'm actually bringing the content I had previously into this product. And it's a component of the whole experience. If I say, you know, I'm going to Berlin, I would answer a few questions and this would tell me, okay, you're an American citizen, so you don't need if you're under 90 days. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. I've actually been doing beta tests with about 200 people. I started about a month ago. But yeah, basically what it does is you just sign up, create your profile. You're like, I'm a citizen of the U.S., I'm a female. I, uh, my passport expires on this day, blah, blah. And then you create your trip and it'll be like, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to drive on this trip. I am going on a boat on this trip, whatever. And it'll like then build you a personalized kind of timeline of things you have to take care of before you leave, things to take care of when you get there. It'll tell you, It'll kind of build you these uh, kind of personalized guides for each city that you go on. It'll be like, okay, you got to watch out for the air quality in the city is really bad. So you should bring like an air mask or something. Or to drive in Germany requires like an international driving permit. So you got to make sure to apply for one, blah, blah. And basically, like instead of you having to research 30 different pages, it's just given to you in a really easy to digest format. And told, and we tell you exactly when you need to do things. That's... Amazing. That also sounds like a ton of work and information and content. Well, yeah, that's actually why it's taking me this long. I actually thought I'd be done in like December, but <laughs> but in order to get this bill, you have to basically build the system on the on the that a user never sees. Like you have to build the city data, the country data, and how it all connects, and like how like all the recommendations connect to the cities and countries. And then you have to build what the user sees, which is like the timeline with the checklist and all that stuff. So I basically spent like three to four months just building the system that manages the cities and countries and recommendations. And then now, and then I spent like three or four months, like three months building the consumer side of it. And the user side is web and like an app? So as of now, it is just web. But I mean, I, I know for sure I need to do mobile and I'm hoping to get to that like towards the end of this year. And the way I built it, ideally, I can share maybe 60 to 70% of my code between the web and mobile apps. But that's kind of to be TBD. Just because I'm sure this is something people would think about. How does like security and personal info work? Yeah, no, I've actually been thinking about that a lot just because like, yeah, GDPR, like I actually don't allow European, any Europeans to use it currently because like GDPR is like kind of annoying to deal with. And I do deal with a lot of personal, like really sensitive personal data. So, I mean, I basically have just tried to make sure like you can't, I'm, my backend is secure. Like you can't just like try to hack it in some way. And eventually I do want to, I mean, it's technically encrypted on the backend too. Like if you were to just try to hack my database without actually logging to my account, it would just be gibberish, which is one thing. What else? Eventually I'm going to allow you as a user to have like two-factor authentication. I don't have that yet, but it's not that hard. For me to add. Another thing I do is I try to make it very clear why I collect this information. So like let's say I ask for your password expiration. I'll say why do I use it? I say because 
you know, a lot of countries have passport validity requirements. So I'm asking for this to warn you about that. I don't just blindly say like, just give me your, you know, your gender. Because so, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, I understand that privacy is getting more and more important to people. So, and, and then regulation is getting bigger and bigger for so it is a concern. I mean, and I see both sides, like for sure as a consumer and as a person, you know, I don't want to just throw my identifying details out all over the place, but on the other hand, like it is really challenging for companies to try to work around managing that effectively. Because you do need personal information for things, whether that's you know an expiration. Well, by the belief is if you can just pr- show the user that there is going to be value by being providing your personal information, what will it actually do for you? I think users are willing to give it if they understand. You know that you've put it somewhere safe. Then yeah, you are just doing this startup of your own volition and benevolence and everything else will this be a paid thing will will you get funding what's kind of the approach on that is uh kind of up in the air right now but my current uh i'm mean, kind of treat it as an experiment business model wise but my current two ideas main ideas for monetizing this is um on one end you have affiliate links essentially so i'm recommending services and travel products and all these things that we've curated and rec- embedded but basically, let's say, yeah, I, I recommend these Bluffworks pants for for male, you know, travelers to, if they travel a lot, you know, I could potentially make some money off of off of a person if they and click through that link. Um, but on the other side, let's say you are a frequent international traveler; you're going to like a country a month. Um, so what we're going to hopefully, I'm going to try like a SaaS business model, where essentially I give you three or four trips a year free. Like your occasional traveler, that's kind of be good enough for like 80 percent of people. But if you're a frequent traveler and you're and you kind of see the value in us being able to build do all these personalized timelines and like checklists and all that stuff, uh, you could pay for essentially like 10 dollars a month to be able to get access and create more than four trips a year. And then, so, I mean, I'm, I'm unsure if there's actually a market for people who want to pay for this. I don't know. I feel like there's so much that goes into this that it just should be paid. <laughs> I mean, I think having something free and accessible is always good because it gets people, you know, in the door get their feet wet. But I can see how much work it is on your end, not just because you've chosen to do the full stack and everything, but to even get together all of the research about visas and countries and validity and immunizations and driving and recommendations for the city and all the gear like it's it is a ton of work and yeah affiliate links are for some of those things but a lot of that like you will never earn money off of like visa recommendations you know although no there are visa services my goal is eventually to be like you need a visa you don't have to lift a finger i have all your data i'm just going to apply for you and there are services that you can plug into not to go totally off track with pricing, but it is really interesting the psychology behind, of course, everybody wants things for free, but sometimes when stuff is free or too easy, we don't actually use it or place value in it. And you could say it's a reasonable price at $25, but if you make it 60, then suddenly a customer actually is just as likely to buy it, but appreciates it more. Like, I don't know. Right. Whereas if a good is priced even more expensive, people want it even more because they view it as being more premium. Right. It's it's really crazy. And I guess there's kind of like a general rule of thumb that it's 3x whatever the cost is of the good, like the cost, oh, the cost of producing a good, yeah. Then you mark, you 
sell it for three times that amount or whatever. So figuring out pricing is one of the biggest challenges of any, I think, product freelancer. Starting a business today, there's kind of, there's a spectrum of how to fund yourself. Essentially, you have like the most traditional maybe is like getting a loan at the bank. And the other side, you have a venture capital, which is like, they don't, it's not debt. They just take a percentage of the company. And essentially, if you have, if you sell your company or if you IPO, like they, they essentially can cash out that. But in between, you know, there's a lot of different funding models and I'm trying to explore something in between because the second you take something like venture capital, you're basically stuck trying to go for a billion dollar company, even though your business might not be meant for that. I mean, there's, there's probably been thousands of companies that could have survived making a few million a year, but then instead they try to go to be like a billion dollar company and they die because they're just like growing unsustainably and burning so much money. So I have, and also like, it's just really stressful to do that. So I'm trying to go somewhere in between where I can like, I mean, you know, I think this can be a, a good sized business, but at the same time, I'm not trying to kill myself over it. You know, I want to still have work-life balance. Okay? And I want to kind of have control over my own destiny because it's like you give away enough of a company, like you don't really control it anymore. So that's kind of, I'm trying to explore something in between. I think about a lot, like I'm, I'm not somebody who, I don't have an MBA. I haven't studied the economy. I don't know exactly how these work, but it does seem odd to me that you can we seem to only have sort of two settings. Either you like do your own thing, have your own business. And it's like a very, just like not necessarily making ends meet, but it's like a, a very small scale. Like you just run this thing or you're supposed to get so big that you just become massive. And I'm like, why can't yeah, why can't yeah. get into that sort of, like you said, like low millions a year or, even under that as like a successful business, why does it have to become huge? in and out is a private company and they've just like grown a little bit every year. I mean, they're, they're a giant company now. But the thing is like, they're still private. They still control everything. And you know, they are, but, but it is at the same time, they're not like a billion dollar public company. They don't have to worry about all these public investors. They just couldn't do what they want. Open maybe a few franchises a year. And they do it for like 20 plus years and it's great. Seems like. That's something like, I want something like that where I can just grow some every year and eventually be pretty big, but like, I don't have to be like that in like three years. You know what I mean? <laughs> or Wanderium, you're doing everything. <laughs> Your job is, yeah. so there's project management, there's development, there's research, there's content, writing, marketing, all the things. All of it, yeah. And then at some point, what you know probably once it's launched broadly you're are you hoping to just be more of like the strategic ceo well, i still plan to be pretty involved in everything but eventually like for example for like maintaining the data on countries and cities and all that stuff like that's i want to hire that's like one of my first hires i want to do just because like research I, yeah like I can't, I kind of do it haphazardly right now and it should be a lot better. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's in some ways it's fun to do the thing myself since I don't have to like run decisions by anyone, but and I think it's the right decision for right now because I'm just trying to move fast and iterate and like talk to users and all that stuff. But long-term, yeah, I mean, I know it's not sustainable. In the future, do you see yourself doing, whether on this or anything else, more design? No, I don't really think of myself, even though I did product design for like four years as my main job, I actually don't really think of myself as a designer anymore. I think of myself just like, I like to make things and design is just a tool that I have. Some people really are just drawn. Like I have ideas. I want to make them whatever that takes. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the reason I learned full stack is like, I want to make this, I'm just going to go learn what I need to make this. And it would be the same for any other, if it wasn't software, I'd be like, I want to go learn like sculpting or I don't know. If I wanted to make something, I would just go learn it. It's actually just, I like learning too. So <laughs> I think you do too. So definitely. <laughs> yeah. I, I always have to warn, like if I go to a workshop or I take a tour, that the instructor or guide or whoever that I'm taking notes, like usually in Evernote on my phone, sometimes in a notebook, I'm like, I'm not texting. I'm not being rude. Like I'm just a super nerd and I need to write this down. Yeah, that's cool. Actually, I ask a lot of, you ask a lot of questions on tours. I'm assuming I ask a lot of questions on tours too. Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's just like so much more interesting. And it, it's, it's also surprising to me how often, you know, a guide or a institution will just say, Something as though it's it's kind of like definitive and known. Yeah. I'm like, wait, excuse me, what? And and then everyone else in the tour kind of looks at me like, <laughs> how dare you challenge it? And I'm like, how dare you accept that? Like, they're not necessarily like a lie, but it's like, you know, that they're definitely coming from a certain perspective or with an agenda, not an evil one, but just the agenda of, you know, whatever, oh, promoting the city or the company or the artist or the government or something like that. And, and so I like to kind of poke holes in it or understand the source of that. And yeah. Yeah. And it's just like critical thinking is a good tool. We should employ more often. Yeah, yeah. We'll share everything about Wanderium and you with the links to everything in the episode show notes on our website, modernworkpodcast.com. So all of that will be there. And then I'm assuming can people sign up, on like an email list to get notified when this is available or if they want to be involved in testing or something. Yeah. You can actually just, you can come sign up now. It's actually kind of a public beta. I just haven't really promoted it, but if you go to wanderium.com, W-A-N-D-E-R-I-U-M.com, you can just sign up and check it out. Oh, very cool. Okay. So that's great. You can just go ahead and get started. It's been really great catching up and hearing about what you've been up to in the past couple of years since we did remote year. I'm excited to see this launch and I hope you can get some money for all of your hard work on this project. Yeah. <laughs> but either way, like you say, it's a great experience. And I think, yeah. I think we've got to be like, we were, we talked about personally earlier, but you know, you've got to take risks and you've got to be okay with like failures. Like as long to me, as long as you're alive, failure is not really like what happened. Like you learned something. So have you heard of the difference between scary and dangerous? No, but I can immediately think I get it. And I love that distinction. Yeah, so, yeah exactly. You probably love this. So the way I think about the risk I'm taking now is it's scary, but it's not really dangerous. Like it's not asking, I'm not actually risking my life anyway. Like I might be running out of money. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, but like, at the end of the day, I'm not at risk of like being on the street. Like I still have enough money. My parents will help me really it goes that badly you know i have friends you know i have a network that will help me out i can go work part-time like nothing is really that scary for me or that dangerous for me i i can figure something else out if it really goes bad yes that's exactly that's i mean that's what led me to quit my job five years ago that's what makes me feel good about you know making kind of crazy choices every here and now is that yeah, it's scary. And I don't have, I don't know. There's no yeah. knowledge I have. This is what's going to happen. But I do, 
is I'm not risking my physical body. As long as I'm okay, I'm not injured. It's not like biking down death road, which was terrifying. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. And I think that's one of those things about privilege. It's you've got to work against the systems that create really unfair privileges, but also recognize like, you know, we have the privilege to know that our parents mm-hmm. Maybe, okay, they're not going to bail me out financially from everything necessarily, but if I need it at home. Uh, and yeah, I think it's important to recognize if you have some of those safety nets, like take some risks. Don't yeah. just let scary things exactly, yeah. scare you forever. You don't need to play that safe. You should be able to go, yeah, try, try different things because I mean, I, I view it as like my parents yeah, have given me the opportunity to be in this position. I should use it for something bigger. You know what I mean? And, and a lot of times scary is more about our ego and our comfort, right? Like that's what makes it scary because if it isn't dangerous, I love that to see. I'm so glad you told me that. I cannot <laughs> wait to hear about that and tell everybody all the time. <laughs> that's amazing. Yes. I'm thrilled. Thank you so much for catching up with me and, you know, good luck with the next stuff. Keep me updated. You can find the full show notes for my conversations with Jono on modernworkpodcast.com. You can also find other interviews with people I've met around the world and learn about their work in various industries, from a travel program leader to a film director to software developer and more. This podcast is supported by listeners and friends via Patreon. For more information, visit our site, modernworkpodcast.com. If you enjoyed Jono's interview, please let us know and pass this episode along to a friend. Thanks so much for listening.